Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dirty Sexy History. I'm Jessica Kale, and is it really only Wednesday? Oh my god. Now, a lot has happened this week already, and although I do like to tie our episodes to current events when possible to show how little changes over time, honestly, this whole show could be an extended segment of same shit, different year, I thought that this week you might need a bit of a break. So, we're going back to 19th century France for the story of Marie Duplessis, better known as La Dame aux Camélias. You've heard of her, even if you think you haven't, and although she had a pretty short life, there was a love story at the center of it. It's beautiful and tragic, and this one, I promise, doesn't include crimes against humanity. Let's get started. The archetype of the beautiful, doomed courtesan has appeared so often in media over the past two centuries that it has become a cliché. Think of La Traviata, Carmen, Les Miserables, or even Moulin Rouge. Their stories have become tragedies that titillate while serving as precautionary tales about the dangers of sex work. People live vicariously through these stories while condemning the heroines that they want to emulate and their real-life counterparts. Real life isn't like an opera. Except for when it is. Though there have been countless sex workers in history living extraordinary lives, this archetype in popular media can be traced back to just one. Marie Duplessis, who lived from 1824 to 1847, known by her contemporaries and immortalized by Alexandre Dumas-Fille as La Dame aux Camélias. Though much of what people know about her today comes from Dumas' fictionalized version of her life, there is more to the story of the woman who inspired so much art, and possibly music, during her short life. Today, we're going to look at the real story of Marie Duplessis and the romance that inspired Liszt's Liebestraum. Marie Duplessis was born Alphonsine Plessis in Saint-Germain-de-Clairfoy on January 15th of 1824. Her father, Marin Plessis, was the son of a sex worker and a country priest. Now, he was far from a model father. Alphonsine was his second daughter, and he was apparently so disappointed that she wasn't a boy that he abused his wife until she left the family to seek out work as a maid in Paris, where she died when Alphonsine was only eight. Neglected and unwanted, Alphonsine was sent to live with her mother's cousin, Madame Boissard, who raised her with her own daughters until Alphonsine was raped by a farmhand at age 12. Blaming Alphonsine for her own attack, Boissard sent Alphonsine back to her father, who promptly sold her to a man in his 70s who lived in the middle of nowhere. Oh, guys, this is awful stuff. I promise it gets better. Bear with us, okay? 
Although Alphonsine had no idea where she was, she escaped a number of times and attempted to find work in laundries or shops in the surrounding villages. Eventually, she made it to M, where she worked as a maid until her father reappeared, briefly sold her to an umbrella manufacturer, then took her to Paris. Fortunately, he died later that year. Paris is where the legend of La Dame aux Camélia really begins. At 15, Alphonsine was an orphan temporarily staying with poor relations in the Rue des Deux Écus. Later, it was claimed that she became a courtesan because she had expensive tastes, but the truth was probably less glamorous. Abandoned, raped, or abused by everyone who was supposed to care for her, she was alone again, and she was hungry. Nestor Rogplan, the director of the Théâtre de Varité, later remembered meeting her before she changed her name. Dressed in rags, she was gazing longingly at a fried potato stall on the Pont Neuf. Feeling sorry for her, he bought her a cornet of pomfrites. Not a year later, Roqueplan was stunned to see that same starving girl on the arm of a nobleman in the Ranelagh Gardens. Marie Duplessis had arrived. She named herself Marie after the Virgin, and she claimed she added the Du to her surname because she wanted to buy the Plessis estate at Nonon. It wasn't the new name that made her a success, however. As Gustave Claudin describes her in May Souvenir, her distinction, grace, and charm were sure to make her a star in the world of gallantry. Marie Duplessis was thin and pale, and she had magnificent hair which came down to the ground. She was wayward, capricious, and wild, adoring today what she had hated yesterday and vice versa. She possessed the art of elegance to the highest degree. You could certainly say of Marie Duplessis that she had style. No one tried to copy her inimitable originality. As long as the florists could provide them, she carried bouquets of white camellias. She was charming and tirelessly kind in a way that endeared her to polite society, gaining her access to places other courtesans could never hope to enter. Still in her teens, Marie had seen too much, but it wasn't her past that gave her the melancholy that was noted to interrupt her joyful moods, it was her lack of a future. From Albert Vandamme, an Englishman in Paris. She had a natural tact and an instinctive refinement which no education could have enhanced. She never made grammatical mistakes. No coarse expression ever passed her lips. Lola Montez could not make friends. Alphonsine Plessis could not make enemies. She never became riotous like the others, not even boisterous, for amidst the more animated scenes, she was haunted by the sure knowledge that she would die young, and life, but for that knowledge, would have been very sweet to her. At some point during her short life, Marie had contracted tuberculosis. It was both common and very contagious, though it was still not widely known how it was spread. Though many people were able to live with it, Marie's case was already advanced. She knew she was dying, and so did everybody else. It didn't detract from her popularity, however. She was widely regarded as a great beauty, with actress Judith Bernat gushing. She had an angelic oval face, black eyes caressing in their melancholy, a dazzling complexion, and, above all, splendid hair. Oh, that beautiful black silk hair! Her considerable beauty was made all the more poignant by the knowledge that it wouldn't last forever. 
Still, Marie lived an exciting life. After learning to read with the help of one of her lover's grandmothers, she read the papers every morning, played piano, and attended the theater religiously, where she was a favorite patron and given box seats to the opening night of every show. She collected art and artists in equal measure, hosting literary salons at her museum-like apartment, where she impressed Honoré de Balzac, Eugène Sue, and Théophile Gautier with her wit. At the height of her popularity, she was said to have one lover for every day of the week. She chose each one, and she was so in demand that they were obliged to accept the arrangement and settle for sharing a wardrobe in her room. Still very childlike in many ways, by 1845 she was only 21 and still went to expensive restaurants just to fill up on sweets and macarons, she didn't spend all of her money on frivolities. While she lived, she donated 20,000 francs to the church every year. By 1845, the only person in Paris with more of a following than Marie was the composer Franz Liszt, who lived from 1811 to 1886. Liszt was a Hungarian piano virtuoso who had shown such promise as a child, he'd been sent to study piano in Vienna at nine, gave his first formal concert there at eleven, and published his first piece of music in an anthology with adult experts at the age of twelve. By sixteen, he was living in Paris with his mother, who he supported by teaching piano lessons while drinking and smoking heavily, a habit that made him so ill that a Paris newspaper ran an obituary on him in error when he was only seventeen. Needless to say, he didn't have much of a childhood either. Like Marie, he made up for his lack of traditional schooling by reading as widely as he could in what little spare time he had. Women liked Liszt. So much so, in fact, that Countess Marie d'Agoule left her husband and family to live with Liszt in Geneva when he was still in his early twenties. They had three children together, Blondine, Cosima, and Daniel, but had more or less called it quits by 1840 when Liszt returned to touring. When Listomania struck Paris shortly thereafter, Liszt was 33 and, by all accounts, a total smoke show. It wasn't only that he was considered handsome, which he absolutely was, but his skill and stage presence made his audiences crazy, particularly the women. His music was exciting, avant-garde, and technically challenging, and he threw himself into it, regularly adding or changing things as he went to play up to the crowd. They ate it up in a way that wouldn't be seen until Elvis entered the building more than a century later. Women literally climbed over each other to touch him, fighting over his discarded handkerchiefs and gloves. Broken piano strings were turned into keepsake bracelets, stolen coffee dregs were preserved in tiny glass bottles, and one woman even saved one of his cigar butts from the gutter and had his initials embedded into it with diamonds. Listomania was viewed as a serious and likely contagious condition by medical professionals at the time who warned of its ability to cause mass hysteria and asphyxia. His audiences were rowdy in a way that other classical audiences weren't, and a large number of ladies fainted in his presence. Now, Liszt wasn't immune to the attention, but he must have loved his work. Throughout the 1840s, he toured constantly, regularly giving four or more concerts a week. 
He met Marie Duplessis in the foyer of a theater in 1845. He was there with drama critic Jules Janin, who described their first conversation. Head held high, she made her way through the astonished throng, and we were surprised, List and I, when she came and sat down on the bench beside us, for neither of us had ever spoken to her. She was a woman of wit and taste and good sense. She began by addressing herself to the great musician. She told him that she had recently heard him and that he had made her dream. And so they talked throughout the third act of the melodrama. As different as their backgrounds were, they had a lot in common. Though he was still touring Europe and playing several nights a week, he gave her piano lessons in her apartment. They were lovers while he was in town, and though she continued to see others, her love for Liszt endured. While he was away, Alexandre Dumas-Fille, the son of the author of The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo, convinced her to move to the country with him so her tuberculosis might be helped by the fresh air away from the city. When her condition did not improve and her patience with Dumas wore thin, she returned to Paris. There, Marie surprised everyone by quickly marrying the Comte de Perigot, becoming a countess in 1846. The marriage ended as quickly as it had begun. With Marie's tuberculosis worsening, Perigot grew tired of her and left her in her Paris apartment, refusing her money for maintenance or even medical bills. Marie's time was running out. When Liszt returned to Paris, they stayed together once again. He later wrote about this visit and what she'd said to him that haunted him. I shall not live. I'm a strange woman. I shan't be able to cling to this life that I cannot live and I cannot bear. Take me with you. Take me away anywhere you want. I shan't be in your way. I sleep all day, and in the evening you'll let me go to the theater, and at night you can do with me what you like. In the same letter, Liszt continued, I never told you how strangely attached I became to that charming creature during my last stay in Paris. I told her that I would take her to Constantinople, because it was really the only possible journey I could take with her. Now, although Liszt had wanted to take her away, Marie didn't make it to Constantinople. Desperate to extend her short life, Marie spent the rest of her money visiting health spas around Europe, but it was no use. At the end of January, she went to her last play, Les Pommes du Terre Malade, a vaudeville act at the Palais Royal. She died at three o'clock in the morning on February 3rd. She was only 23. Marie was buried at the cemetery in Montmartre. She had asked to be buried in a quiet place at dawn with no fuss, but her funeral became a public event. Today, her grave is still a major attraction and frequently covered in lipstick kisses. We'll post a picture of that on our Instagram. After her funeral, her apartment was opened up and all of her possessions and carefully curated treasures were sold off. Like Liszt's fans, everybody wanted a piece of her, some souvenir to help them emulate the timeless, haunting beauty of La Dame aux Camellias. A year later, Dumas published his story, setting himself up as the romantic hero in the tragedy of her life. The real romantic hero, however, was on tour when it happened, but he was rather quieter about his grief. He later wrote, Poor Mariette Duplessis, she was the first woman with whom I was in love. Some unknown, mysterious chord from an antique elegy echoes in my heart when I recall her. 
one of the many reasons women loved Liszt. Now, Liszt actually lived another 40 years after Marie's death. By the late 1850s, he had made so much money from touring that, like Marie, he gave most of his income to charity. He continued to tour and taught free piano classes, and though he had a few other affairs, none of them really lasted. After two of his children, Blondine and Daniel, died in the early 1860s, he entered the church, where he became an abbe and was actually ordained as an exorcist in 1865. He continued teaching, performing, and working with the church until he died of pneumonia at 74. But after her death, Marie's legacy lived on in an unexpected way. Barely a year after Marie passed away, Alexandre Dumas-Fille published La Dame aux Camélias, a thinly veiled dramatization of her life. Because he had been one of her lovers and was young enough that no one believed he had the imagination to make it up, it was mostly taken at face value and became a runaway success when it was adapted into a play. Though his father was incredibly famous, Dumas was illegitimate and had no fortune of his own, so he must have been delighted to make one while cashing in on the death of the woman who had broken his heart. Because his depiction of her is flattering, if sensational, readers assumed he was in love with her. If he had been, he wasn't any more, only playing to the public's adoration. They loved her, and they were the ones buying the book. On opening night of the play years later, he took his final act of strange revenge on Marie by giving Sarah Bernhardt, the actress playing her on stage, the last letter he had written to Marie, denouncing her and ending the relationship she had already left by returning to Liszt in Paris. If he had loved her in life, Dumas hated her in death, so it's ironic that it was his book that made her immortal. Marie's beauty made tuberculosis a fashionable disease, the symptoms of which are still held up to be beauty standards to this day. But we'll talk about that on another episode. <laughs> La Dame aux Camélia was later adopted into La Traviata, which became the template for every tragic romance about a young, beautiful, doomed sex worker ever since, up to and including Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. But we haven't come all this way to let Dumas have the last word. A key hint to Marie's true nature might have been in plain sight all along. In the Victorian language of flowers, camellias stood for longing. Not long before she died, Marie explained this to actress Judith Bernat. Why did I sell myself? Because honest work would never have brought me the luxury I craved for irresistibly. Whatever I may seem to be, I promise you I'm not covetous or debauched. I wanted to know the refinements and pleasures of artistic taste, the joy of living in elegant and cultivated society. I've always chosen my friends, and I've loved, oh yes, I've really loved, but no one has ever responded to my love, and that is the real horror of my life. Although Dumas' book remains the most widely known memorial to Marie Duplessis, it wasn't the only one. In 1850, Liszt completed Liebeschwam, or Dreams of Love, the title echoing the first conversation he had had with Marie when she had told him that his music made her dream. 
It was a three-part series of piano solos based on poems by Ludwig Uhland and Ferdinand Freiligroth. It has been argued that he chose these to illustrate three different types of love, but read together, they are also three stages of one great one, played out in his brief yet monumental romance with Marie. Love at first sight, erotic love, and love after loss. Now, I'm actually going to read them for you here. I promise they're not too long. See what you think. Latest qualm number one, Holy Love by Ludwig Uhland. In the arms of your love, you lie intoxicated. The fruits of life beckon to you. Only one glance has fallen upon me, but I am richer than all of you. I gladly do without earthly joy, and martyr I gaze ahead. For over me, in the golden distance, heaven has opened. Liebeswalm number two, Blessed Death by Ludwig Uhland. I died from the delight of love. I was buried in her arms. I was awakened from their kisses. I saw the sky in her eyes. Liebeswalm number three. This is just an excerpt, this one's a little bit longer, but this one is by Ferdinand Freilagroff. Oh, love as long as you can, oh, love as long as you may, the time will come, the time will come when you will stand at a grave and mourn, and you will kneel alongside the grave, and your eyes will be sorrowful and moist. Never will you see the beloved again on the churchyard's tall, wet grass. You will say, look at me from below, I who mourn here alongside your grave, forgive my slights. Dear God, I meant no harm. Yet the beloved does not see or hear you. He lies beyond your comfort. The lips you kissed so often speak, not again. I forgave you long ago. <sighs> what a story. Now, I know we have a lot of romance writers among our listeners. Do any of you want to take this story and give it a happier ending for us? <laughs> Maybe write a book about a courtesan who miraculously recovers from a mysterious respiratory illness and years of horrific abuse and marries an incredibly hot and accomplished composer who worships her before she dies? I know I would be eternally grateful. <laughs> but Dumas, though, he's still got to get dumped. Anyway, if you would like to hear Liszt's Liebeswalm for yourself, there are plenty of recordings of it on YouTube. He really was absolutely incredible and well worth checking out. Play a couple of pieces later today and try to imagine for a minute what it must have felt like to see him doing that live. Truly, he was the Eddie Van Halen of classical piano. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Or, you know, you could watch Moulin Rouge again, which is never really a bad idea. Now, this week's episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you by my childhood with my classical pianist mother, thanks mom, and our lovely patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Elizabeth Davis, Michelle Dunbar, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, and Jessica Miller. Thank you all so very much. If you would like to support the show, check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it really helps us out. As always, you can find us through our website at dirtysexyhistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we will post the photos for this week's show. 
Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast, and this episode was written, produced, researched, and all that good stuff by me, Jessica Kale. My sources today include John Baxter, Monmard, Paris's Village of Art and Sin, D. Olivier, Correspondence de Liste et de la Comtesse d'Agout, Joanna Richardson, The Courtesans, The Demi Monde in 19th Century France. Alan Walker, Franz Liszt, The Virtuoso Years. See you next week.